This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. I grew up in New Jersey, so right outside New York, and I went to school in Philadelphia, so nearby too. But then I spent the early part of my career working in Hong Kong and then London, and then a little bit, a brief stint in Kenya, and then back to New York um, since 2013. Wow, that's... That, well, that must be interesting. I mean, how is how is it like working in uh, in Kenya, for instance? It was so interesting. I mean, I had spent when I, the time that I worked in Hong Kong, I actually worked all through Southeast Asia, so I spent a good amount of time in Taiwan, and about a year living on and off in Jakarta in Indonesia. And so I saw a lot of parallels just to um, you know how quickly things developed there, and how quickly things were changing, and how um, basically just like this crazy convergence around. Um, growth and economic growth at the same time as technological growth. Right. Cause this was, uh, I think it around 2008 up until 2012, right. Is when you were in, yeah, in, exactly. in, in Hong Kong. Uh, through like 2013. Yeah. And what's interesting too, is when you were there for, for a lot of people who might not know, you were actually in investment banking. So I'm in capital markets. That's something I guess we, uh, we share ahead of and curious, like how was that stint starting your career within investment banking uh, in Hong Kong? And then, you know, we'll get to the entrepreneurial path, but just sticking to that for a second, how was that like? So I'm not sure I even knew what investment banking was before college, but you get to Penn <laughs> and everyone wanted to be an investment banker at Penn in the early 2000s. Right. I think that's probably not the case today. Probably today everyone wants to work at Facebook or Google, but um, then everyone wanted to be an investment banker. And so I said, let me figure it out. Let me talk to people. And I just started reaching out to people and um, learned so much about all of the different ways that you could be an investment banker and ended up um, dying for a role in Hong Kong because I had spent the balance of my college time studying Chinese, Chinese history, politics, culture, language, and working, or sorry, studying abroad in Beijing. And so I really wanted to find a way to stay in Asia and ended up in an investment banking analyst program there and just loved every minute, which I feel like maybe not everyone says, but it was such cool primer exposure to so many different markets. We worked across all of Asia um, from Japan and North Asia down to Southeast Asia and even Australia. And so you got to just see so many different markets, so many different stages and work with so many different types of companies doing all different types of transactions because in Asia, they're smaller teams. So you just get to work on more things. Um, and it was such a way, it was such an incredibly cool way to start a career, I thought. Yeah, well, especially like in 08, I mean, during, during the recession or maybe coming out of it, but I think yeah, just I that, right? Been, I mean, that must have been even, <laughs> <laughs> that must have added a lot more pressure being in that space. Um, but it is very true. Like, you know, I studied finance and even when I was in university, uh, the same, the same was the case, you know, it was either consulting or IB. Those were kind of the, 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 the go-to, uh, you know, places to work. So uh, it's interesting how that's migrated towards entrepreneurship and how that is now kind of celebrated. Whereas in the past, it used to be like, basically we're employed, right? If you told anybody I was an entrepreneur, <laughs> it was basically like, all right, buddy, like you're, you're self-employed, right? Um, completely. Well, completely, right? What, what was the, what was your, I guess, mindset at the time? Like when you were transitioning out of IB, you end up going to, I think London for a stint, but then you, you migrate back to, to New York and you start I guess, dabbling with an entrepreneurship. How was that start like for you? What was the transition? Why make that decision in the first place? Curious on that front. Oh, both of my parents are entrepreneurs and I grew up basically listening to them in the car <laughs> and talk on phone and sell people. And I just loved it. I always knew that that was what I wanted to do. 
And I always knew that I had it in me to do it. And so I really almost immediately wanted to get out of working at a really big company and start working at a really small company doing really big things. And so the first one was a total stroke of luck. Someone I'd gone to college with had become a recruiter and she called me and she said, I think you'd be great for this job. It's in London. Do you want to move? And I said, yes, let's do it. And so um, I kind of stumbled into startups and um, e-commerce in particular, but ended up getting so much out of it and really loving it. What was the first venture you actually started on your own? Like the first one you were actually a founder or co-founder in? Well, when I was 11, I started running summer camps with my best friend and we would people nice. left their children with us. <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, and hate us. And we ran the summer camps through high school. So for six or seven years, I think. And um, then after that, um, I started a store with my mom in college. We opened a store during the financial crisis in 2008. And so those were the first two big ventures, I think. Wow. That's well, so you definitely had that DNA, you know, early on. And it's, it's always that case. Like whenever I talk to serial entrepreneurs, it's always somewhat ingrained in the family. Um, curious, <laughs> just quick, quickly on this. Do you think entrepreneurs are made or are they born with that kind of DNA or maybe a bit of both? I think it's a combination. I really think what you're exposed to matters so much. And um, the more you're exposed to high growth businesses and people taking big risks, I think the more you get the bug. But mm -hmm. I think that comes a little bit, maybe it's more the nurture than the nature um, in terms of how you grow up too. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's an interesting take. Um, so, so you get your start in entrepreneurship, uh, you know, you start making the transition, then life leads you to joining this tech business called uh, Capsule, which, you know, ended up being a, a pretty sizable story, right? They raised over 270 million, <laughs> trying to re rebuild, uh, you know, the pharmacy, uh, pharmacy space from the inside out. How does that how did that whole situation happen? Like, how did you get introduced to Capsule? What led you to to then, you know, becoming head of growth, head of strategic partnership? What was that story? I broke my back in pelvis skiing in um, the winter of, I think it was 2014 or 2015. I forget now. Uh, and it was my first real interaction with the healthcare system. And I couldn't believe how incredible the quality of care was and how medieval the delivery of that care was and I was particularly fixated on the pharmacy every time I went there there was a different issue and I couldn't imagine why this was still a retail business when in my head it really just should have been an e-commerce business and I was talking about it so much I wanted to buy a pharmacy in Queens in New York and put an app on top of it and I was really like asking anyone I met if they thought that was a good idea or not and if they hated the pharmacy as much as I did and what their pain points were with the pharmacy. And a really good friend said, you have to talk to this guy, Eric, who's starting a pharmacy. <laughs> You've been talking about it for so long. And so I went and met Eric and it was just this immediate click where he said, you know, it's not, it's not a retail business. It should be an e-commerce business. It's a healthcare business. And there's this huge amount below the surface, a massive iceberg business. And there are so many different things that go wrong. And if you give me an example of the things that go wrong in the pharmacy, I will tell you all of the reasons behind the scenes why that's happening. And I said, wow, this is massive. This is so cool. And I want to come build this with you. Yeah, that, that's all. I mean, I, I think if I wanted to digest what you were saying is basically you ran into a personal pain point. Obviously the entrepreneurial light bulb within you starts kind of surfacing and you're trying to figure out how to tackle this. Cause Hey, if, if I have this pain point, I'm sure other people are, you start asking a ton of people. I think just putting it out in the world probably led you 
to, to the to the CEO of Capsule, right? And then figuring out, well, hey, listen, you know, he's he's trying to work on a very interesting solution. Why don't we partner up? I think that's kind of what 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 the moral is there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that Cheryl Sandberg quote, which is like, when someone offers you a seat on the rocket ship, you don't ask which seat, you just get on. And I think from the first meeting, I just knew it was going to be a massive business and that Eric had a really big vision for it. And it was so different than the way that I had been thinking about it. Was it, and I'm curious just on your take, and I'm sure a lot of people actually have, might have the hesitation. I know when I went from kind of corporate to to startup, I joined a fintech startup that was a post-seed pre-series A, 15 people. I, I, f- I felt a bit of hesitation, although I do have the DNA as well. Uh, it was the first time transitioning into a startup that wasn't something I started myself. And so I was trying to build a framework of like, what, you know, what are the pros and cons? How do I make that decision? If it's an early story, a lot of it is that gut instinct. I'm curious, like, did you, and, and based on that quote, it seems to be the case, right? Like, you don't ask, you just kind of get on, on a seat. And I didn't and, ask like, any questions. I don't, I remember <laughs> we had a, like five or six conversations. And then I said, are you going to make me an offer to come work there? And like, <laughs> I want to be there. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, we'll figure it out. So I think, you know, I didn't really have any hesitation. I always get really nervous the day before a first job. And I definitely got really nervous the day before, but you know, I was just so excited about the idea. And for me, that is always the reason I get out of bed in the morning that I just said, let's do it. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So it, it's, I think what, it, what you're referring to is, is mostly that uh, kind of intuition, right? Like you had this gut feeling that this was not only going to work out, but it's something you're personally excited about. And because of that, you were going to be successful in that kind of situation. Definitely. And curious, just all, again, lastly on this, but when you when you're a bit nervous day one, how do you, like, what's your, basically, what's your model? If it wasn't a, a startup that you founded or that you're leading, what's your model? Maybe the first, let's say 30 to 60 days to get situated, but also start leaving like a, a good impression on, on the role and, and making a good impact. I think two things. One is just coming in and really defining success. So saying, here's how we're going to think about my success. Here's how we're going to think about what I'm going to do. And here's how we're going to measure it and getting buy-in from your peers, from your manager, from people that you manage in that capacity and saying like, here's my plan. And um, are we all aligned on that? And are we all agreed that this is how we'll measure it? And then just ask people how you can help them. (laughs) Get to know people, see what people are working on, see where people are stuck and ask how you can get them unstuck. I remember when I first started working at Capsule, um, the chief pharmacist was, she had spent her entire career working in pharmacy And she was building out all of these different workflows in Excel and she'd never used it before. And so she was like, can you just help me learn how to use Excel? And I remember the first few weekends working at Capsule, I would go in on the weekend and help her set up spreadsheets and workflows in Excel and just learn what she was doing and learn, you know, how her work was, how how fundamentally different her work was in a retail pharmacy setting from what we were trying to build. Understood. Do you ever feel a bit of imposter syndrome at first, especially in like a leadership role. Cause I know a lot of people go through this. It's not always talked about, um, you know, in, in the early days when you're still trying to get comfortable, like there's always this maybe space of unknown, right? Like, uh, am I deserving 100%. of this kind of role? I, I think yeah. Thing about being an entrepreneur is like this incredible cognitive dissonance that you're always holding. One is like, I have no freaking clue how to do anything I'm trying to do. I've never done it before. This team exactly. of people has never done it before, but also I believe we can do it. <laughs> and I'm not sure how you hold those two things in your head, but you do all the time. And I think, you know, it's so real and so true about imposter syndrome in startups because 
you are constantly put into roles and situations where you don't know if you can do it and you have definitely never done it before. I remember um, a few months into Capsule, Eric asking me to run the sales team and saying, you should figure out if you want it to be inside sales or outside sales. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what? I didn't know there were multiple types of sales and Googling like inside sales versus outside sales and trying to figure it out. And you just think, how could I run this team when I don't know what it even means? And right. I think you just have to be really, really focused on absorbing and being a sponge and learning and opening yourself up and saying like, here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's where I need help asking for help. One of the amazing things about startups in this era is just how much help and support there is. You know, investors have built these incredible platforms. And so asking people for help, asking for introductions, asking for people who have done it before, asking for, um, you know, just asking people as many questions as you can, I think is the best way to work yourself out of that and end up learning. Mm, yeah, that, that is very true especially with the, with the questions part, right? Like, like not being afraid to do that so that you don't look like you don't know what you're doing. Cause I, I think that that's probably the, the quickest way that you can get to uh, an answer uh, essentially. I feel like specifically in early stage businesses, there is no upside right. to pretending you know what you're doing. <laughs> right, right. I think it's harder and, and probably the imposter syndrome gets more and more real the later stage you join a business. But I think early stage, it's just a bunch of people in a room really passionate about a mission with no idea how to get there. And the more questions you ask, the better. And so you spent roughly three three years, let's say three years, three months, I think, on, on LinkedIn. It says uh, in, in with Capsule, uh, taking on different roles, right? As I mentioned, head of business operations, head of growth, head of strategic partnerships. I'm sure you, you, you learn a ton, right? Uh, you were there for three years. When do you get to the point when you work with another growth startup? In this case, you know, it, it obviously blew it. Like you guys raised a ton of money. Um, I can't, I'm not sure exactly. I think there's like 500 employees at Capsule. But how do you get to the point where you're like, you know what? I think it's time for me to move on and do my own thing. How do you get to that to that point? It's so incredibly hard. And I will just tell you that people had said what I'm about to say to me a hundred million times before. Maybe you're crazy. hundred times before. And I didn't believe them, but it just clicked. And you'll be playing with a lot of ideas and you'll be thinking about what you want to do next and you will not be obsessed with the idea. And then one day you will feel obsessed with the idea. And that is when you can go work on the next thing because you have to have, or I have to have this incredible obsession and passion for what I'm doing. And so I was playing with ideas for almost the entire time I worked at Capsule. And then I woke up and was like, this is the thing I want to do. This is the thing I want to work on. And this is what it's going to look like. And that's when I knew I could dive into Calibrate. And there are a hundred times along the way where you're like, I think this is the one. I think I could get really excited about this. I think I could spend the next 20 years of my career working on this. But then it just clicked and you're like, no, I have to spend the next 20 years of my career working on this. And this is the problem I want to solve. And this is the way, this is, this is the thing I want to do. And it yeah, feels it, it, so different than all the other times I thought about things. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I guess that's that's the hard part, right? Because unless you go through that, like it's it's all, almost tough to describe a feeling, right? Like what, what you're talking about, but it's it's almost like a hundred percent assurance that like you've got you've gotten to a different kind of excitement to start building on this. Um, did Did you ever have any like models to say that, like mental models? I mean, uh, to say that you know I'm going to give myself six months because that's often something I hear. 
right? Like I'm going to give myself six months. If this doesn't work out, maybe I'll, I'll go. But like, was there anything like that that you were working with? I, I, I've heard that strategy too. It's never clicked for me. For me, okay. I'm all in or I'm all out. I'm a definite all or nothing person. And so I think for me, it was, I'm not in, I'm not in, I'm not in. And then I'm in and it's going mm. to work. And of course it's going to work. And I can't think about the downside of it not working. Yeah. Like if there's no plan B, I think Will Smith said that once, right? Like, why would you have a plan B if all you're focused <laughs> on is plan A? <laughs> um, so you, you end up, you know, you wake up one day, you're like, all right, this is it. I'm going to do this. I'm super excited about tackling this kind of challenge. What did you see about the, the whole weight loss, weight management, sustainable uh, kind of the, the weight health, let's say, what was it in that space? Like, was it another personal pain point, just like you, you experienced with that pharmacy aspect and then led you to, to, to join capsule or was this something different this time? This was really the culmination of two things. So the first was a trend that I had observed while I was at capsule. And that was what is directive consumer pharma going to look like? Because we're getting really close to it but we're not there yet. And there's the same amount of margin on a branded pharmaceutical product in the US as a Peloton, but the acquisition funnels look so fundamentally different. The Peloton funnel is so modern. It has so many touch points. It starts really broad with word of mouth and referral and top of funnel advertising. And then it gets really super, super specific to the point where you can talk on the phone to someone about whether or not Peloton is right for you and how you're gonna finance it. And then pharma is just running bus and TV ads saying, ask your doctor about our unpronounceable drug. (laughs) And so I had this theme, like, what is the future of that? Like, how do you build a really robust funnel for pharma companies? And what does it look like? And who's going to pay for it? And why? And how do you like, what does real consumer demand look like in that category? And so I was spending a lot of time at the end of capsule thinking about that. And then my mom had a doctor's appointment and called me and said, I really, I have to lose weight. I've been wanting to lose weight forever. You have to help me figure this out. And so we found this doctor um, in New York and we both were just surprised who knew that there were doctors who focused on weight loss. I, I didn't know. And then the doctor recommended a drug called a GLP-1 and I start researching and the drugs, all of the clinical research on the drugs is on the GLP-1s alone, the medication alone, into behavior therapy, which is like a CBT, a cognitive behavior therapy for weight loss specifically. And then the combination of those two things. And all of the clinical research for 20 years shows that the combination of the two things is twice as effective as either alone. And so my immediate question is, where do you do this in real life? <laughs> where do you get the medication and the, and the intensive behavior therapy together? And I start asking and I start emailing the people who published the research and emailing the people who edited the research. And I get connected to this woman who runs the World Obesity Federation. And she's been doing this for four decades. And she says, you don't really, it doesn't really happen in the real world. It happens in clinical research. And I said, why? It's so effective. It's crazy that we're sitting on the answer to this problem and we're not getting it to people. And she said, you know, there's been so much progress made here. We have 4,000 obesity board certified doctors. Now it was 2005 years ago. And the problem is there are 175 million American adults who would benefit from this program. And that's just a massive gap. And so immediately the entrepreneur in me was like, that's the gap I want to close. And the opportunity there is, is to check all of the boxes for me, right? It's to build a consumer brand that really resonates. It's to change the way that consumers think about an entire category. It's to change the way that pharma companies think about reaching the consumer. It's to change the way that payers, whether that's employers or the government, think about paying for care. And so really like just 
all came as an avalanche onto me. And I said, this is the coolest opportunity to really take such an incredibly important challenge in, our, in terms of public health and change the way the world thinks about it. And so the mission at Calibrate became to change the way the world treats weight, which is really twofold for us. One, change the way that we talk about it, that we think about it, move the conversation from willpower, which is what we talk about when we talk about dieting, to biology, to really understanding the underlying biology of weight. And then second, to change the clinical care delivery for weight. So to take what's been available in clinical research and make it available to everyone everywhere. And, and there are two sides to this, right? Like, as, as you pointed out, there's the, the actual kind of healthy lifestyle aspect of it, which we'll get into. But let's just stick for a second uh, on the GLP-1s, which I think some people listening might not have, have heard that term yet. So curious if you could it just... It would be so unusual if you had heard of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unless you were probably in that space. But uh, let, let's dig into that. What are GLP-1s and, and how does Calibrate work uh, w- with GLP-1s essentially to provide medications that, that help, uh, I guess, people lose weight in a proper sure. format? GLP-1s are hormones that everyone's body produces. And they move between your gut and your brain. So when you start eating, your gut produces them and sends signals up to your brain saying food's coming. And what what we know is that as people gain weight, they are not producing enough GLP-1. And so the drugs were actually brought to market in 2005 in the US to change the way that people's insulin reaction worked around food. And as a result, we noticed that people were losing weight. And so the drug companies went back and said, let's do more research and understand what's happening here. And we realized that the drugs are really what's called pyotropic, which means they have a lot of different outcomes and effects. And they do everything from changing your body's inflammation levels to changing your body's, um, uh, to changing your blood pressure by changing the way that your blood flows to changing your insulin reaction. And so basically we've come to understand that the way that GLP-1s work is really well suited to resetting a metabolic system and to saying like, where your body is now is being defended by your GLP-1s. And if we change your body's GLP-1 production, the drugs are actually agonists. They increase your production of GLP-1. And if we change your body's GLP-1 production, we can change the set point where your body is set, where your metabolism is set. Understood. Understood. And I guess that starts like in the process of, of, let's say me being a first time user of Calibrate, that starts in the beginning of the process for you to understand my specific biology, my specific framework, body type, et cetera, right? Yeah, your health history is so important to us and understanding your personal health history and your family health history is a huge part of how our doctors treat you. And is that through like a DNA test, like a 23, like how does that, like a swab? It's through blood testing. Blood testing, gotcha, gotcha. Um, What I like too is, is the virtual component uh, obviously, I don't think any of us anticipated the the, the flood of COVID and, and kind of moving at this pace in a virtual environment. Did you always, like, was the setup of this always to be more on the digital health, like the telehealth side once, you know, once I passed the, the lab work, uh, now you pair me up with a Calibrate doctor. We do a lot of this coaching virtually. Was that always in there or, or was it sped up because of, of the COVID-19 environment? It was always intended to be entirely virtual, but for sure the consumer adoption sped up because of COVID. So consumer comfort with doing the entire program with Zoom, I can't even imagine what it would have looked like a year ago. And we were definitely or definite t- like tailwinds behind the business because of consumer adoption for work or for other medical appointments. 
via telemedicine that gave us a huge advantage in helping people change that behavior and adopt that behavior. Gotcha. And I guess and now moving to the other part of it, right, which is that healthy lifestyle. So people know it's not just the, the medication aspect, right? Like the, the program around Calibrate is really around food, sleep, exercise, emotional health. There are certain things that work together uh, to complete this kind of package, right? And I guess that that's Absolutely. something that you guys that's provide. The behavior therapy piece. And that really says, how do I help you make tiny changes over the course of a year, one change at a time that add to big changes at the end of the year. And so we're trying to get everyone to seven to eight hours of sleep a night but we'll start where you are. And we're trying to get everyone to 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise, but we'll start where you are. Right. And, and so I guess because it's a one-year program, the is the real sort of micro outcome uh, such that, you know, I would guess a person loses the 10% of their body weight and really gets that reset, which is where the, 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 the term comes from in terms of Calibrate. Is that is that what you're seeing with, with, uh, with users who go through Calibrate? The aha moment for me was that there are millions, if not billions of ways to lose weight, but there are very few ways to do it sustainably. And that the best way that I could find to replicably do it sustainably is by improving your underlying metabolic health. So improving things, metabolic health is defined by five metrics, one of which is your waist circumference, um, which has to do with the amount of visceral fat you have in your stomach. Um, But others include your blood pressure, your cholesterol, Um, your blood sugar, your blood fats. And so those are the pieces that we really focus on improving because when you improve someone's underlying metabolic health, you are laying the foundation for their body for that reset, for their body to lose 10 to 12% of their weight sustainably. Right. And that is through a combination of of medication that that you provide, but also the the added lifestyle component, right? Absolutely. Yeah, those two things work together as a flywheel. Well, that, that's that's the interesting part, right? Because I remember when, like, when I was growing up, um, and you know, I struggled with 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 weight gain. I mean, much a better place now, but when I was a kid, it was like I was I was an overweight child. Let's put it that way. And, and we always looked at different alternatives, right? Bernstein and all all the I forget uh, Atkins diet. Like, there's all these things that kept coming up, and none of them seemed to work, at least not for the long term, right? Like, it would work great for a couple of weeks, a month, but as soon as that that kind of finish line comes to pass then it's you're on your own and you don't even know what to do anymore and a lot of people relapse and i think you say on this on your on your site which i really enjoyed is it's it's beyond just like willpower right some people that there's there's a deeper aspect to this than them just not want like i don't think anybody wants to be unhealthy at the core right you ask any person who's extremely overweight or very unhealthy it's essential for people of course like it's, right? it's against the natural instinct to want that yeah, like everybody wants to be healthy, but knowing how to get there is, is the is the part that I guess you're trying to solve sustainably. Absolutely, yeah. What were some of the case, like I guess, success stories that that were closest to you, kind of emotionally, like when you when you came across them, you're like, this is exactly why we're doing this. It's every day for us. Our members tell us, you know, I went to my primary care doctor and she said I can come off my blood pressure medication, and I've been on my blood pressure medication for 30 years. And I can't believe that it's possible that I can live without that. Or I went and had my A1C check um, and my doctor said it had improved by a point. Like, I can't believe that. You know, it's it's these things for people that felt like permanent, non-reversible things that they've been able to reverse and just how completely empowering that is for the customer that get me out of bed every day. Because when we hear those stories from our members, that's why we all do what we do. 
Very interesting. Was it ever difficult to convince doctors to come to the Calibrate platform? I mean, you know, doctors who, let's say, work in traditional hospitals, uh, now moving to a startup, was that ever a thing or, or was it quite, quite easy? It really wasn't because I think what most doctors are really craving is more time and a more holistic approach, not treating symptoms, right? Treating the underlying root right. cause. And both of those are what we're doing, right? We give you your first appointment is a 45 minute face-to-face video with a Calibrate doctor who has reviewed your entire medical history ahead of time, who has reviewed your weight health history ahead of time, who knows how you self-rank on sleeping and eating and exercise and emotional health. And so I think for us, it was so, you know, it's so incredibly rewarding for doctors to be able to do that type of work. And that's really why they became doctors. True, true. Um, stepping quickly on the capital raising side, um, I'd love just to, to, to quickly touch on that because I know that as a CEO, right, as a CEO, as a founder, you have so much going on. So much is riding on you. You're trying to lead the team. You're growing. You're establishing the culture. Uh, you're trying to make sure you know customers are happy, patients are being served well. All this is going on on your shoulders and obviously your teams. And on the other aspect, you're also trying to think about next steps, the growth plan. You obviously had some experience doing this through investment banking, through capsule. What was the process like raising uh, capital for, uh, for Calibrate? And I think the last round was around 20 million, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere around there, maybe a series B, but curious if you can walk us through that, that journey so far. I think it comes back to really what I've been saying the whole time, which is whatever you're passionate about is what people are betting on. They're betting on you, they're betting on your team, and they're betting on the idea, particularly early. And so I think for both our seed and our series A, which is what we just announced, it was really people saying, do I believe that this team can accomplish this mission? And do I believe that the market and the opportunity are massive if they're able to do that? What do you think is the is, is probably the the thing that most entrepreneurs, I guess, misstep when they're looking to, to, to raise capital? Because I think that's always a challenge, right? Like you find some entrepreneurs, it, it usually, not, not that it comes easier, but they're usually just better at it. Um, given that you've done this a couple of times, what kind of advice would you give aside from the, you know, the excitement, the passion, doing something that, that really interests you? What have you kind of learned doing it? I think it, you just take it one level further. You just can't give up, right? It is mm. always really hard. And you will talk to 200 people who will say no before you will talk to someone who says yes. And I think you have to learn. I was reading Bezos announced his retirement yesterday. Right. So I was reading a bunch of Bezos quotes on Twitter this morning. And one of them was around like, you just literally are going to get told that you're wrong, that you're dumb, that your idea doesn't make any sense, that it's not going to work a million times. And, and it is so hard not to take personally and it's so hard not to get under your skin. Um, and I think naturally people who have been, you know, really successful through their careers are really used to being told that they're smart and that it's working and that it's going to work. And I think it is just such a total flip when you go um, from something that's successful attraction to nothing and you're telling people about it and they just don't get it. And they're like, that's right. not going to work. And so many people tell you that's not going to work. I mean, people will agree with you like, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, that should exist in the world. But like, you're not going to be able to do it. And here are all the reasons why I think you're not going to be able to do it. And they tell you just as if it's, you know, their job, which it is their job to tell you. <laughs> and, you know, there's not a lot of emotion from their end where that when they're telling you. And when a VC, I think one of the really interesting things about venture capital in general is like the risk reward model, right? Because 
a VC who bets big on something that doesn't work looks dumber than a VC who doesn't bet big on something that does work. And so I think you have to find people who are, who are equally excited about what you're doing and why you're going to do it and why you're going to be successful doing it. And it for sure is at least a ratio of 200 to one of people who don't believe that to people who do believe that. Yeah. And, and sometimes there's actually really good insight. Like I was listening to uh, masters of scale, which is Reed Hoffman's podcast. And yeah. he, he talked about the story of, of uh, Kara Golden, who's the founder of hint, uh, like a beverage lifestyle company. Uh, and, yeah. and basically like she used the insight of all the no's that she got to actually uh, provide insight as to, as to where the opportunity is for this kind of beverage. Uh, so it was interesting, like not just hearing no, but listening through those kind of gems that, that might come across even in the no and, and digging deeper, right? Like, why don't you think it could work? And then leveraging that, because most of the times to your point, you know, what you're trying to do is disrupt the space. Like Airbnb is a classic example. If you asked anybody 20 years ago, if they'd rent their, their couch, you know, to, to a random person on the street, everybody would say no. Um, <laughs> and, and they still manage to do it or, or get into a car with a stranger. And here we have Uber, right? Um, so, so there's a bit of that as well. I totally agree. And I think tactically there, a good thing that I always tell people is like the first 10 investors that you talk to, make them like people who, who you're not desperate to have invest in your business because you will learn so much from the first 10 conversations. And you will be able to use that in the next 10 conversations, in the next 90 conversations. And, and maybe a question for you just on this topic before we get into more of the personal like day in the life and all that stuff, which I know people always love to, to know about. Um, when was that tipping point? Like I always love asking this based on Malcolm Gladwell's book, actually called Tipping Point. But when did you have that aha moment that there was, aside from actually making the jump and starting uh, calibrate when was that tipping point when you're like this is actually a thing like was it the raise was it the first patient like I'm just curious when when that actually um, was a reality for you so a few hours after we launched the website we were planning to tell our friends and family about it the next day and we had put up google ads and they were really generic they were things like prescription weight loss and a woman in upstate New York clicked the Google ad, spent two minutes on the website, took out a $1,500 loan to pay for the product and signed up. Not a single review anywhere on the internet, no one who had completed the one-year program, no one who had used the product, and she signed up. And I think for me, that was the real tipping point. Like, this is going to work. We will find customers. We will find product market fit for how we talk to, message market fit for how we talk to those customers, product market fit for what we're doing. And so... I think that to me is like the never look back where I just knew that, you know, if you could take someone and in two minutes, convince them to use your product, that you had something that would work. Interesting. Yeah. The, the first user, right. I know for, for some folks, it's like getting to a million for others. It's like getting just to one user, one patient, whatever your, however you describe a customer. Um, for me, it was one. It was one, right. Yeah. And I, I love your, I mean, so far I'm loving the mindset for you. It's like, listen, uh, we're all in, right. It's kind of like when you play poker, like the solid chips and we don't, there's no looking back at this point, which is, which is quite nice. It's kind of like when you go skydiving, as soon as you jump off, like there's no, <laughs> you got to make it down. You can't get back on that plane. <laughs> exactly. It's just getting on the plane, right? It's, I don't know if you ever skydive, but it's, it literally is that feeling that that's the closest thing I can associate to entrepreneurship. Uh, it's the scariest thing getting on that plane. But as soon as you're there and you're about to make the jump, you're like, I'm the craziest person. Why would I ever do this? You make the jump. It's like one of the best feelings in the world. 
you know, obviously if it works out. And in some cases it doesn't, but it's all good. We won't talk about that. Um, curious, just on the personal side, uh, Isabel, like what, first of all, what does a day in the lo- life look like for you, especially right now, right? With this environment, leading a, a pretty large team, you just got off a, a pretty sizable capital raise. Uh, yeah, how, how does that look like for you? You know, I really love routine and um, habit. And so I really try to build my days the same way. And so I generally wake up around seven, I read, I catch up on email, I catch up on Slack, and then I try to work out. Um, I'm a big Pilates and yoga fan. And then I usually start the day of meetings and I'm in back to back to back to back Zooms. I've tried one of my New Year's resolutions was to try to be really vigilant about does it require Zoom or not? Can it be a phone call? Because I personally am like an extra level of drained by Zoom. And so we, I've been doing a lot more phone calls um, than Zoom. Our entire team meets every morning at 1030 to just talk about what happened yesterday. How did the business perform? What are the biggest things that we need to get done today? What are blockers? What are big initiatives? What's going on? And then we go about our days. We have meetings. We talked, you know, I spend a lot of time externally, um, particularly recruiting and looking for new team members. And then I try to wind down the day by cooking dinner and I try to wind down the day by doing a little reading. I've uh, been trying to read a lot of fiction this, this year, but nice. Um, I definitely end up back on email quite a bit too. <laughs> it's, it's tough to, to separate that, right? Especially when you're also at home, the home is the office, the, the, the office is the kitchen, like that kind of separation you actually have to physically do. Otherwise you fall in that loop. Um, the apartments were definitely not designed for all day <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, to, to withstand the COVID stuff. Um, curious, like I know you mentioned exercise, you mentioned kind of cooking, which I'm assuming is something you enjoy doing, obviously, at the end of a, of a long day and a, and a busy day. How important has your mental health been? And what are some of the things that you know now that you, you would have potentially done more of uh, looking back in your earlier days? It's so crazy how differently I work now than I did in my early days, particularly if I think back to investment banking. Right. For example, you never sleep in investment banking and it's a real badge of honor not to sleep. And yeah. now I take sleep so seriously. And I know that if I don't sleep or I don't get good sleep one night, I'm going to be totally off for all of my meetings the next day. And so I think it is just so incredibly important to know what you need to be successful and then make space for that whether that's going for a walk, whether that's exercising, whether that's cooking, whether that's a bath, whether that's meditation, like whatever it is for you, you just have to know and you have to make time and space for it. And it doesn't always happen. Like the week that we were fundraising, I had meetings 15 hours a day and I didn't do a lot of the things that I just talked about. But Mm -hmm. I really do try to get back into that habit and routine as much as possible and to make sure that there is time and space for it because I know that I'm just such a better version of myself and the way that I work, the how is so much better when I'm like that. You're literally calibrating is what you do. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's true. Like you go through stretches. I mean, obviously when you're cap raising, you're not going to, it's going to be more difficult to establish a lot of the routines just because it's, you know, that it's like that last stretch where you have to really push the pace and just get it done. And then when you, when it is done, you know, you'll put your feet up a nice glass of wine, hit the gym the next morning and carry on with your life. Right. Um, speaking about sleep, I know it's super important. This is something that, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm struggling with uh, now at, at times, right? It's, it's kind of like up and down, but I'm curious as an entrepreneur, how do you go to sleep and just shut everything off, right? And I'm trying <laughs> like head at space meditation and, and I'm asking a lot of people for advice. And I know a lot of pe- other people struggle with it. 
so just curious, like, because sleep is so important to you as it should be, do you have a process for shutting down the machine so that the mind goes to rest? <laughs> I will say I, this is definitely like a do as I say, not as I always do moment, Yes, yes. but it is all about routine. And so what I try to do is like, put the phone down, put the computer down. Not always the case. They are definitely in bed with me sometimes get in the bath, like take that moment to actually like change your body temperature or change what you're thinking about, change what you're doing, and then go from the bath to bed without any lights, <laughs> like no computer, yeah. no phone, and really respect that ritual. It's really, really important for me. I've also been taking sleep supplements for about a year now, which I really, really love. I take different ones for different reasons, but I think anything that you can do to build the habit and the routine and the ritual of it is what works for me because it's like your body is being triggered. Like this is like, this is a, this is what we're doing. We're going to sleep. Um, and you, you start to recognize that. I also think the consistency of hours is so important. And it's something I feel like people have told me forever, but I only really kicked in and sunk in with me actually during the pandemic, which is like, you have to be in bed for the same hours every night, or I have to be in bed for the same hours every night. And if I'm not, you know, if I'm, if I stay up really late and I wake up really late, I just get kind of completely thrown off and I get, mm -hmm. we call it a calibrate tired and wired. Um, it's when your adrenal system's out of whack and you are just like both tired, but also wired and you can't, like, I, I find that the night after I do that, I have the hardest time sleeping. It's so true. Uh, even things like, for instance, not eating, you know, within a, a past limit, like two hours before bed, super important, right? Shutting down like work. Cause again, that's very stimulating at the same time. There's a lot of things I think in that in those routines that there's just small habits, right? In those choices, that if you make small adjustments, I'm finding personally is working out much better. Um, yeah. So one yeah, thing at a time. One thing at a time. Uh, maybe just last question for you. Um, you know, being a CEO, being a founder, I think the definition of of, of a leader gets thrown around a lot. Uh, so two questions on that: How do you define leadership, and and some, I guess, how do you operate as a leader? And then two who are some other leaders that you either look up to, you try to emulate, or you just try to know about as a source for motivation or inspiration? Well, this is so cheesy, but I know nothing about sports. And I read Phil Jackson's book a couple of years ago. He's the great basketball player and yeah. coach. Yeah. And his entire philosophy was around this triangle offense, which I really still can't explain to you that well. But yeah. the thing yeah. that resonated with me and the reason I read the book so excitedly is that it was this idea that like, if people have clear roles and people have clear goals, they will do great work. And then your job is to get the best people, because if you give them clear roles and you give them clear goals, they will do great work. And so that is really how I think about leadership. And that is really what I admire in other leaders, people who create clarity of both goal and role, and then people who find the best possible people to put them in those roles and let them hit those goals. Gotcha. You know, one, one thing actually on this, uh, again, you don't have to be a sports fan, but uh, I don't know if you, you ever came across the, the Netflix series, uh, The Playbook. No. It's, Isabel, you got to watch it. Uh, <laughs> I will one, one, of, one in particular, it, it basically it, it interviews different coaches, like the best performing coaches in different sports. But one of them is Doc Rivers, who took the Boston Celtics to the, to the playoff. I mean, they, they won the, the championship that year in 2008. And he talks about uh, the leadership principle called uh, Ubuntu, which is, uh, I think it's originated from South Africa during the apartheid. Uh, and basically like um, 
you're never going to be great if you just play for yourself, right? And if you operate, because he was dealing with uh, several superstars on one <laughs> yeah, on one team, the, which is often part of basketball. I think <laughs> exactly, and it's it's it seems great that you have all these great players, but you know, you butt heads, egos, passing the ball that becomes difficult and it's tough to manage. So, anyways, you check it out. It it kind of hits on that that similar theme that uh, that you were talking about. I definitely will. Thank you. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.